We are in a series, um, have been in a series, I Centered, where we've really been talking about is our culture all around us that becomes very much, without even realizing it, without even, you know, even paying attention to it, just becomes very much about me, kind of me-centered, I-centered. Um, my decisions in life really begin to become driven by what's best for me and my personal fulfillment and my pleasure and my joy and my happiness. So we just kind of stepped back and said, is this how we should be living? So we've been talking about pride and selfishness. Now, what we've really done in the first four messages is just really kind of unpack the subject of pride and how ugly it is and, and how, um, you know, just kind of said this is what we don't want. Now, this morning, we're going to kind of shift gears this morning and next week. And let's say, let's talk about what we do want. Okay, we know what we don't want. What do we want? And we're going to talk about humility. Now, the real heart this morning is that we all leave saying humility is the way to live. (laughs) My heart as a pastor is to make humility look really attractive because I think a self-absorbed culture, we love self. And so there's a battle that goes against humility. And so the hearts want to say, you know what? Humility just makes common sense. And I want to live this way. I also recognize, and here's just want to state right up front. There's a lot of pressure in me this morning. I'm about to become that guy who talks about humility. And I say that guy because I've got friends in this room who know the backstage truth. I'm looking at a number of you who I would consider friends who know the real Adam. Who know that humility is not something that just naturally oozes from my pores. It's something I have to work at and give a lot of time to. I also understand that there's a dilemma facing anyone who would approach this topic publicly. Basically, I'm... You could look at me and say, does this guy really think he's an expert on humility? In which case, he almost certainly isn't, right? If I stand up and anyone to them and say, I know all there is to know about humility, you probably can check them off and say they really don't know anything about humility. Then you could say, well, if he's not the expert, why is he talking to us? You know, as I went back through my folders of messages that I've preached over the years, I've been publicly speaking now, um, preaching, talking through the Bible for about 10 years I could not find a single message solely devoted to the subject of humility. I've never preached on it. The reason I've never preached on it is I meditated on that this week and thought, why is that? It's because it's one of those areas in my messages, I like to talk about things that and come from a place that I've worked on, lived through, wrestled with. And humility is one of those ones that I've looked at and said, I really don't have mastered, so I really don't want to stand up and talk about it. But it's also one of those truths that I can't keep putting on the shelf and not challenging people with until I've got it down. So this morning, I share all that to say, as I stand here this morning, or sit, whichever it may be, um, I'm here as a fellow journeyman. I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am to anyone else. The things I share, I'm sharing for me, probably more so than I am for you. So uh, join me with that. The real heart of it, though, comes in that I feel the weight of this message probably more than any other message because it's this message, the message of humility and the converse of it, pride, that brought me more pain and destruction in my life than I've ever experienced. I want to kind of set the stage of that so you understand the place that this comes from and you understand that this has been fleshed out through a lot of tears and heartache, counselors, mentors, and friends. Some of you know this story, others of you um, may not, so if, if you do know it, just hang in there and, and hold on for a few minutes till we jump into some other things. But I was in my mid-20s, graduated from Lancaster Bible College, finished up school. I was already married, my wife was pregnant. 
looking forward to having our first child. Ended up being a boy. I was employed. A church had contacted me out in Mifflin County, Pennsylvania. And it's out um, where we were was, if you know the region, that's just north and west of Lewistown, out more of the Reedsville, Milroy area, right before you go over seven mountains to head into State College. Beautiful region. It was a church of about 250 to roughly 300 people at the time. I had come in as the associate pastor, not hired as a youth pastor, not hired as the associate. Now, as associate pastor, my main role is to help the lead guy and help the church be really successful. Now, as I came in, um, I began to figure out, okay, how do I do this? And what does it look like? And let's make this thing work. I began to realize I want to give at least a little bit of energy to something I'm really passionate about. And I really found myself gravitating towards the students or the teenagers. So I, though I wasn't a youth pastor, I gave a lot of my energy and time in that area. And, and what ended up happening is we saw, and when I would use the term, we saw exponential or some have even said rocket ship growth. It just blew my socks off. When I got there, the very first winter that I was there, we did a, we did a winter retreat slash snow camp, which our senior high will be heading on something very similar next weekend. And our junior high came back from one last weekend. We did the same thing. And we go off the very first year. We took a 15-passenger van with lots of extra room in it. My last year there, the, the, we left in March, and we went on the retreat in February. That February, we had to take almost, almost filled completely two full buses. And these were kids These were kids that weren't just coming in from other churches. These were kids that were finding life in Jesus for the very first time. We were seeing every single month five to five or so young people accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. It was just unbelievable growth. It was taking off and it was blowing our minds away and we were excited. But I began to do what some have called cosmic plagiarism. You know, God is the author of life, right? And God is in control of life and God will not share his glory. But I began to share, want to share that glory to say, man, God, you're really doing a cool work. But I really began to make it more about what Adam was doing. And I was starting to get, look at me, look at this. What's happened in the meantime is the church as a whole, as the, as the student ministry is just growing like crazy. The church as a whole was going down and to the left instead of up and to the right. We were actually losing people. The church not only had plateaued, but was beginning to shrink some. So deep in my heart, I'm beginning to look at the senior guy. I never said this to anyone. I never shared it with my wife. I never shared it with friends. But deep in my heart, I wasn't even necessarily aware of it. But what was happening is I'm thinking if this lead guy would just get out of the way, the whole church would grow like our student ministry is growing. Let me take charge. I was very arrogant is the word I've used um, and have come to realize. Very proud. Because of the tension that it was naturally forming between this ministry that was growing and the church that was not, and we brought in a consultant to talk with us. Now, this consultant, some of you have been to Promise Keepers in the past. Some of you men here, you have heard this guy speak. You've paid to go hear this guy speak. He was a vice president of Promise Keepers. He's published multiple books. He's a national figure. He's well-known people. He is a, a dynamic, charismatic personality and a strong leader. He comes in to consult with the church. Now, in the midst of consulting, he puts his arm around me, never forget this, and he says, Adam, you've hit your glass ceiling. You're not going to go any further here. It's time for you to go. And he says, I'd encourage you to come down to Charlotte, North Carolina with us. We're planning, we have a whole team of us down here. We're planting churches all around Charlotte. And this is where our very mission is. And, and as he spoke, my heart's going, yes. And then he says this to me. And it was like he, he injected poison right into my veins. He didn't mean it this way, but he, he said, you know what? You're destined for greatness, Adam. Now, I heard those words and I said, yes, finally someone recognizes it. 
Finally, someone sees it. Finally, someone can acknowledge it. And this guy is a national figure. So without really doing a lot of research, without doing a lot of digging, and without really doing a lot of prayer, I said, we're gone, man. We're all in. So I pack my wife Two toddler boys at the time, and Eden, those of you who know Eden, was just born. And matter of fact, she, not only was she just born, but she had complications. I remember the, the weekend we were going down to visit. That week, she ended up, we had a, an emergency rush her into Lewistown Hospital and ultimately took her down to Hershey Medical because she stopped breathing. And it's like, and, and so the church, the, the, the group calls me up, are you still going to come down to candidate? Yeah, I'm coming down to candidate. I mean, that's where my mind was. I don't care, my daughter. It's the, it's the, for the sake of the cause. Here we go. Now, I was there nine months and gone. So that sounds like labor. It was labor. It was. When I left there, I had been, I left losing the career and the job that I loved and I lived for. It was gone. More than that, and probably the one that was even uglier, was I had barely held on to my marriage. I left there thinking for sure, we're going to get back to Pennsylvania and my work divorce is going to be filed. I mean, this isn't, we cannot, we're not going to make it closest I've ever been. I don't say that lightly. Divorce is something I do not support. I'm not excited about. I don't think it's a pretty thing. And I, but I'm, my mind is going, there's no other option. We're done. I had so much trauma and pain and, and dysfunction pouring out of me. I'm gone then. And you know, I got a job up at SuperValue, selecting and throwing cases um, as an order selector at, at SuperValue. And every night I'm driving up 222. We were living in Lidditz. So, as you know, they were driving up to 222. Almost every night I'm crying on my way to work. Just calling God, should I just end it? I mean, and, and then I have these kids I'm thinking about. I'm, I just, I was in pain. Now, as I've unpacked that, and some of you have heard that story. Some of you say, okay, I had to move on. Okay, we've, we've heard this story, and I know, so just hang with me. As I've unpacked that with counselors and mentors and friends, and I continue to do, one of the things that consistently surfaces is, Adam, what drove a lot of that pain was your arrogance, was pride. Now, pride doesn't die easy. It's something I've been on and a journey I've been on to continue to kill it but it does not die easy. The real heart of this morning, aside from making humility look beautiful, is that we all kind of walk out of here, and this is what I've kind of embraced and understood. Humility is a beautiful way to live. You can truly be great. That's what that guy whispered in my ear. You can be great. Greatness is fine. There's nothing wrong with greatness, but you got to go about it the right way. And it's a humble way. And it's a beautiful way to live. And humility perpetuates life. It doesn't destroy it. My life was destroyed because I wasn't humble. And I almost destroyed a lot of other people's in the process because I wasn't humble. We should lighten the mood a little bit with a joke. And then we'll jump into the text and kind of illustrate this point. There's, there's a story. Uh, I heard a story, you know, of a plane. It's going to crash. Four guys on board. Pilot comes back to the other three. And he says, listen, hate to tell you, there's only three parachutes. It's my plane. I get one of them. I'm out. He straps on and he's gone out the window, out the, out the door. The three guys left a medical doctor, a pastor, and a drifter, kind of a hippie ish kind of guy. The medical doctor looks at the other two with, and he kind of says, guys, listen, I am one of the most brilliant minds this world has ever seen. He said, I and my team right now are working on cancer research and we are this close to a breakthrough and because of my genius and my brilliance and the world needs me, I get one of those packs. He grabs one without any kind of discussion and out the, out the door he goes. Now, 
the, the kind of the drifter hippie dude and the pastor left there and the pastor starts talking. He goes, well, listen, I've spent my entire life helping others know about eternity and being at peace with God. And, and so, you know, I'm pretty much ready to go to be with God and because I believe in Jesus. And so, you know what? You take the pack. And the guy looks down and he goes, now, wait a minute. We can both jump. We've got two shoots here. That brilliant doctor took my backpack, not a shoot. His pride and arrogance ended his life. It didn't perpetuate it. It's what, he, it's what arrogance and, and it does. Humility brings life. I want to start with a definition. Um, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you're brand new to church, brand new to Jesus, brand new to the Bible, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hope you enjoy this morning and find at some level um, your heart being challenged and being drawn to consider who Jesus is. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to find Philippians, about three quarters plus through. You're going to hit an area of the Bible we call the New Testament. Flip, continue to flip through that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You're going to see some larger books, First and Second Corinthians. And just right then after that, you're going to run into a grouping of smaller books. In that is going to be Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Now, out of Philippians chapter 2, there's a definition that I've kind of worked with. Um, this is something that I've journaled over the years, and this is the kind of a definition I, in my journey with humility, this is a definition that I've used. Um, I don't think I've read it anywhere or seen it anywhere else, so I um, hope if you find it somewhere else, let me know. I'll give that individual credit. Um, <laughs> but it starts this way. Humility, and we're going to see this right out of Philippians chapter 2. Humility is first and foremost living with purpose. I think this is one that I've, you miss at times, but you really can't live humble if you don't have a clear purpose that's bigger than you. Second one, live with purpose and for the good of others. So not I'm going to live with purpose, but I'm going to live for other people. So it's, I'm going to dedicate my life to being about your life, not my own life. And the final one, and this is the one that over the years that I've just found incredible freedom in, I'm going to live without anything to prove. So I'm not standing here trying to prove something to you. I'm not standing here this morning trying to prove to you that I'm worth my paycheck. I'm standing here because I'm on purpose and because I'm serving you, not to try and prove something. So I can live free and at rest with, with nothing to prove. Look at Philippians chapter 2. We've been in this passage already in this series, and we've looked at it at some. We're going to look at it again, just keep scratching into this. We're actually going to start this morning in verse 3. It says this, do nothing. Now, this word nothing. Nothing in life, whether I'm brushing my teeth or standing here to preach a message or any point in between, getting dressed this morning or driving here, whether it's interaction with my wife and my kids or my friends, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits. Not about you, Adam. Live life for others. But in humility, there's our word, in humility, consider others better than yourself. So as I look at you and you look at those around you, We're to look at others as saying, you know what? You're better than I am. You're a better person than me. Because of that, you're worthy of my attention, my time, my respect. You're worthy of dignity, and I'm going to give you that. I'm going to serve you. Each of you, verse 4, should look not only to your own interest. You know, let's be honest. We're going to live for our own interest. There's nothing you can do to stop that. Nothing you can do. You're going to continue to live for your interest. But don't only live for your interest, but also the interest of others. 
Okay, your attitude, verse 5, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So your attitude, this is a key word. It isn't just talking about your actions. It isn't just talking about your thoughts. It isn't just talking, it's talking about all of you. Everything about your, your personality, every, your attitude, that which drives life, the values that you live, the, everything about you, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. So what Paul's going to do now, the writer here, he's going to say, okay, this is be, live for others, Consider humility. Now, here's an example. His name's Jesus. Verse 6. Who being in the very nature God. So Jesus is fully God, yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Crazy, crazy reality. Jesus, who the Bible teaches, created every single one of you. He was involved in putting you together in your mother's womb. He was involved in creating this world. He was involved. I mean, it's, it's a, but yet he comes down though. He was involved in creating you. He comes down and he says, I'm going to lay that stuff aside and I'm going to serve that, which I created people being made in human likeness. Verse eight then continues and being found in appearance as a man. He, here's our word. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Then if you notice in those of you of the NIV Bible, follow along with me. It says, even, see the word even, death on a cross. Because see, the cross to us today is, is a beauty item. It's something we wear around our necks. We stick through our ears. We tattoo on our bodies. We stick on the back of our cars. We wear in t-shirts. We adorn it all over churches. And we say, this is a beautiful thing, the crucifix. But in the Roman world, when this would have been written, when Jesus lived, the cross was the most humiliating form of death. There was no greater humiliation than to hang on a cross. It was gruesome and it's ugly. And so not only does Jesus come and he gives himself up to death, but he says, I'm going to give myself up to the most gruesome and humiliating death possible. Therefore, verse nine, so it shifts because he did this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So all of creation And every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord for the purpose to the glory of God, the father. So I pull this definition loosely from this text. I want to kind of, kind of go a little deeper with this and just kind of unpack this. The first one, living with purpose. Jesus is our example. He set, and we look back to other writings where Jesus has talked about. I think you, some of you know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Right. The verse that follows it, I think, gives Jesus purpose, living with purpose. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So Jesus didn't come to say, you bad, terrible, horrible people, you're all going to hell, but to save the world through him. So he says, listen, I'm going to come and bring you to God and it's going to happen through my life. I have purpose. Jesus himself in the book of Luke, I think makes it crystal clear when he says Luke in Luke 19, some of you know the story of Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he yada, yada. I'm not going to sing the rest. That's going to be ugly Um, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. So Jesus came his very clear mission and purpose was to come and interact with people who were far from him and wandering through life as I've come to bring life. John 10, 10 is another one. Um, Jesus came to give life, eternal life and life to the full. So if you want to experience life, Jesus says, I've come to give it. There's nothing more beautiful than a life lived with purpose. So I guess I just stop and ask the question, make it very practical. Okay, Adam, what is your purpose? How many of you in 15 words or less can name your purpose in life? What it is that you live for? 
Most of us don't ever just stop and answer this one. I'm amazed at how many people I interact with and just say, what is your purpose in life? People will just generally say, well, to glorify God. Well, that's cool. But what is your true purpose? What has God called you with your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your experience and your family background? And and what is it that God has called you to do that's bigger than you? And it's hard to be humble without living with purpose, without saying, I know what life is about. Because what ends up happening, (laughs) this keeps us very humble because, again, it's serving something much bigger than us. Again, we're going to talk about this one at great length in our next sermon series, actually, uh, coming up in two weeks. We're going to work through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this this one is going to be square in our target. What's our purpose? Now, the second one, for the good of others. We looked at this verse last week, Mark chapter 10. Again, Jesus' life. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus himself says, I came, I came to serve. So again, if he's the humble model set before us, I think we got to ask, who am I serving? I mean, who are you intentionally serving? We've had illness run all through our home this week. So I had a lot of opportunity to serve. A lot of opportunity to serve in ways that I don't really like to serve. You know, when you're scrubbing that stuff off the floor and it's about ready to come up yourself. Sorry, I apologize. But I mean, that's just kind of how my body works and it's, I'm serving. But you know, it's very intentional there. But how, how often am I very intentionally saying, I am here to serve my wife and my kids. I am here to serve my neighbor. I am here to serve you. I mean, who am I serving? Who am I intentionally made it my point to say, I am here to give my life up and to truly serve. And the final one, and this is the one I love. This is the one that's given me freedom more than anything else when it comes to humility. This is beautiful. This is my favorite part about humility. Nothing to prove. Jesus, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter captures this thought. Peter was a friend of Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He saw Jesus' life. And here's what he records. He committed no sin. So Jesus was sinless. And no deceit was found in his mouth. Now, that can't be said of any of us here. When they hurled their insults at him, I just pause there. When someone insults you, what do you do? What is your natural response? Isn't it to defend and to fight? Some of you say, well, no, I'm just going to run away. Well, that's still protecting yourself, and it's still a defense mechanism. Our natural response is when we are insulted is to, here we go, fight or flight. Look what Jesus does. This is amazing. When he suffered, Lord insulted him, he did not retaliate. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. Again, it comes back to his purpose. I know why I'm coming. I know why I'm living. It's to, it's to carry their sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Talked about in Philippians chapter 2, to the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Then Peter just wraps it up. By his wounds, you have been healed. Think about this. Jesus, the perfect, perfect son of God, standing in front of all his accusers in an absolute shameless mock trial. Unbelievable. Justice was not done even in a little bit. Not even a little bit. A shameless mock trial. And he's being accused and threatened and insults are flying. They're ripping his beard out. They're beating him. They're slapping him. They're spitting on him. There isn't a hardly a one of us in this room that our justice sense wouldn't rear up and say, listen, that's enough of this. 
But he stands there and what's he do? I'm going to keep quiet. I'm not going to fight back. Because the reason he had nothing to prove, he knew who he was. See, here's what I've come to learn. This is why humility is so hard and arrogance and pride is so easy for us. Most of us in life, what I've found to be very true, true in my life, so much of our success in life is born from our arrogance, is born from us trying to prove something to someone. My own life, okay, I've shared this before. When I was in elementary school, I was in the IU 13. And so therefore, because of that, I'm so thankful for the IU 13 and all this. But I had this stigma that carried with me of he is stupid. He can't speak. I stuttered and stammered through my words. My fine motor skills were way off. My, I couldn't spell. I still can't spell. Apologize for that. But I, I still can't spell. And I just, I struggled with this. Or, and I, I saved a... Um, you know, my, my mom saved this blessed thing of all my years of school. And in that you find notes from teachers that just flat out say, I don't know if there's any hope for Adam. I mean, I lived with this stigma of he is stupid. So I worked really hard to prove that I am not stupid. I'm trying to prove to people I interact with, I'm not stupid. So I, a lot of times my public speaking has been more about proving to the world, proving to my elementary teachers, proving to my mom and dad, proving to everyone around me that Adam is not stupid. Football. I excelled in football. It wasn't because God gifted me with athletic ability. If you look at me, you say, yeah, you're right. He did. He didn't. It's because I worked really, really hard. I worked my tail off. A lot of what I worked my tail off for and ended up getting colleges offering me scholarships was because I had something to prove. I had something to prove to a grandfather who I loved and I appreciated, but he constantly had me measured against his own son who was a state champion wrestler, had a full-ride scholarship to Lehigh University, and, and he's, my, this grandfather would say things to me that I remember vividly in my mind. No doubt he didn't mean to hurt me, but it came into my mind as, listen, why do you play football? It's for sissies because you've got 10 other people in the field that can make up for your weakness. But when you're out there in the mat wrestling, he said, I never forget when he said this to me. He says, you're out in the mat wrestling. He'd say, when you blow it and your weakness, it's exposed for everyone to see. So I worked my tail off to prove to my grandfather that I was worth something because I could play this sport. I could excel at it. I worked my tail off to prove to a coach who told me in my 10th grade year to hang up my uniform because I was worth nothing at, on this field. And I said, I'm going to show him and I'm going to work my tail. As you listen to entrepreneurs, business leaders, doctors, you listen to anyone who's made it in life. Oftentimes after the Super Bowl or talk to, listen to Michael Jordan's interviews throughout the years, great athletes. Oftentimes what you hear was I worked to show them that I could do this because my identity is not secure in anything other than what I perform and what I can do. I stop being a human being and I start become a human doing because my identity is wrapped up in all this stuff that I need to prove to you my worth. There's times I'll walk onto this stage still to this day, just very candidly and thinking, I got to prove to these people that I'm worth the paycheck that I receive. And there's days I leave this stage realizing I just preached a horrible message. I know it. They know it. I could see it in their faces. And I go home feeling, man, I didn't prove to them again that I'm a good pastor. So I love this reality of humility. We can live with great freedom and just step back and say, man, I have nothing to prove. <laughs> so I guess I'd ask this question very personally. What are you trying to prove? And who are you trying to prove it to? Because to live that way is actually not a humble life. 
It's really about, I am going to do this myself and I'm going to show you and I'm going to show them and I'm going to be someone. Maybe it's your spouse, your siblings, your mom or your dad or a teacher. Now, as I think about this and I've unpacked this, and one of the things that I've watched, I just want to share five things that I've kind of learned that, that really make then this, this humility very beautiful. Just some, some fruit of living with purpose, living for others, and living without anything to prove. What comes of this life? I think the first thing you see is you see boldness. Boldness and courage. In our culture today, we, you hear the word tolerance talked about a lot. We need tolerance. I would say we don't need tolerance. I'd say put tolerance in the toilet. I think tolerance is useless and pointless. What tolerance, what we really need today is humility, not tolerance. Because I think humility, what humility allows me to do, humility allows me to stand as Jesus did. Look at Jesus' boldness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, this is not tolerant, right? This is not politically correct. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Now, how would you feel if someone said that to you? Oh, he's got to go to anger management class, dude. He's, he's got some kind of issues he's got to go work on. He wasn't very tolerant, but he was very humble. And because he was very humble, he was able to speak truth. And he did it with such beautiful grace and dignity. Boldness and courage flows from a humble life. Because I'm not always worried about what they think. Because what I'm really worried about is what's best for them. I'm not worried about what are they going to think of me. But I'm worried about, man, what's God think of them and how can I help them? And it changes it all together. So I'm no longer holding stuff back because of my own protection. But I'm giving it away to help those that I love. I think the second thing after boldness that you come is you see growth. Jesus grew. Did you realize that? We're going to look at this passage in great depth next week. But Hebrews chapter 5 says, although he was a son, referring to Jesus, he, look at this word. You say, Jesus, the son of God, had to learn. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Humility is generative. It is giving. It grows. Humble people, when you're a humble person, you're a learner. You're a learner. You know, it's interesting to me. The people in this room, all of us here gathered, we're brilliant. There's some real brilliance here. I, I genuinely mean that. Those of you I interact with and, and work with, I mean, I learn from. Fact, what I'd love for you to do is just turn to the person you left to your right. Just let them know. This morning, they probably need a little pick-me-up, pad their ego a little bit. Look at them and say, you're brilliant. Just go ahead. Some of you look around, you can't find anyone, right? Look behind you then. <laughs> Don't let anyone out. Make sure everyone feels really good here. You're brilliant. Now, despite the brilliance in this room, I want you to think about something. If we would bring all of that brilliance together and all of our gifts and all of our knowledge and everything and put it into one big pile, okay, and bring it all together, what we still collectively don't know and can't do far exceeds what we do know and can do. Have you ever thought about that? Let me say it again. What we collectively don't know and can't do far exceeds what we do know and can do. You talk to an expert in any area. If you're here and you're a medical doctor, talk to them. That medical doctor has been through how many years of schooling? A lot of schooling. 
And what, what, what an expert knows, an expert in any given field, whether it's public speaking, doctors, whether it's business, whether it's, whether it's whatever it may be, you talk to any expert, what experts know is, is there's a whole lot more to know. Because I've been to school for all these years and I've studied and I've worked and I've learned and I still am only scratching the surface. So humility, when I'm a humble person, when I'm truly humble, I'm willing to stop and say, you know what? Okay, I may preach okay, but I can get better. I'm willing to acknowledge I can get better because I'm only scratching the surface. There's more to go and there's more to learn. So I think humility really becomes a place of growth. And I think great companies are birthed out of a humble place because they're willing to say, we haven't arrived. We can get better. I don't have egos to protect. We can get better. We can grow. I think another one that flows from this is rest. Rest. Now, this is one that our culture craves. I'm not just talking about sleep. I'm talking about soul. Rest just at peace. Slow down. The ability to breathe. The thing about this, it's basically the no more need to fight, no more need to defend and control and get all uptight, but just simply relax. Matthew chapter 8, one of my favorite stories. Is like when I was a kid, I liked this story, and my kids like this story now. Um, it says this, Then he, referring to Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was, look at this word, Sleeping. I remember when Hurricane was at Irene here two years ago came through and we had it forecast. We knew it was coming and the winds start blowing like crazy. And that's the year we had this blessed tree fall down and take out all kinds of stuff in our backyard. And I remember I wasn't sleeping real good that night. But Jesus in the middle of this storm is sound asleep. The disciples, they're freaking out. I mean, these guys are like, what's going on here? So the disciples went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, and here's boldness again. How many of you ever said this to your friends? Oh, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? I mean, it's again, it's, that, it's, it's speaking for them. He's, hey, guys, listen, shape up here. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Jesus was able to just rest. Rest. You know what I've learned is truth. Truth does not fear a challenge. Right? Truth doesn't fear a challenge. So if my wife comes to me, if I'm a husband and my wife comes to me and says, you know what? And confronts me and calls me out on something. Husbands, what's your natural response? Oh dear. Thank you so much for delivering that nugget of truth to me. I'm going to get right on that and we will make sure that's all better and perfect for you. What do we do? Our natural gut response is to defend and to fight. But when I'm able to rest, I don't need to defend and fight. I can just rest. Because truth, if if I'm right and she is wrong, time will prove it. If she is wrong or if she is right and I'm wrong, time will prove it. It will will play out. And not only that, but if I'm a truly humble person, I want to hear this. And I, because I am serving her and I want to serve her better. So again, truth does not fear a challenge. And so we can just learn to rest. Beauty is another one. <clears throat> Excuse me, beauty. We all want to be beautiful people, right? I mean, there isn't probably one of you here, I don't think. I look around the room, I don't see anyone that this fits the bill for. There isn't one of you here that didn't put some nice clothes on this morning. You didn't just come here with how you slept last night, right? 
You did your hair, you took a shower, you brushed your teeth. Some of you painted the barn, put some makeup on. Some of you tried to find a stand in front of the mirror. And I mean, you want to be, we want to be beautiful people. Beauty is hum- humility. Humility is beautiful. I mean, I think we see this in, in Philippians chapter 2 when we see Jesus is exalted. We see it again in Luke chapter 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I, I shared, <laughs> my, my mind immediately jumps to uh, Veggie Tales. I apologize. That's, I've got kids right now. Um, Larry Boy has an episode. Uh, Larry Boy's the, the, you know, sorry, some of you are like, what is, who's Larry Boy? Larry Boy's the cucumber, you know, Larry the cucumber. He has an episode where he becomes Larry Boy. Kind of looks like Batman. He's got these suction cups for ears. And Larry Boy has this episode where he's very proud. He thinks he's God's gift to the world. And so professor, I forget what the professor's name is, is trying to teach Larry Boy how to be humble. And they're, they're memorizing this verse through the episode. And Larry the cucumber gets it all mixed up. And he says it this way. And he who humbles himself will be exhausted. Is how he couldn't get the word exalted out. Now, I, I understand that. You, humble, you do get tired after a while. But, but again, it's, it's not. It's exalted. It's beautiful. See if I'm right on this. Aren't you attracted to people who are truly great and humble? We like people like that. We're drawn to them. We're like, man. I really like that person or in our national scenes in sports or business or whatever it is nationally that you look to our music or tonight in the Grammys, right? When some of you are going to watch the Grammy awards tonight, there's going to be all kinds of people standing on stages like this wax and eloquent and all kinds of political and who knows what else kind of things, right? So they're going to stand there and there's times you're going to hear very arrogant speeches. Most of us in this room will hear that and think, Whoa, it kind of repels. But when you sense someone who comes on stage with great humility They're obviously great, else they wouldn't be given the award, right? They've obviously accomplished something, but when they come on stage and they have this this humble persona, we're like, man, let's download that song. We're drawn to it. We're drawn to people who are truly great and humble, and we can't stand people who are truly great and want us to know it too. You know people like that? Who are truly great and want you to know it? And want everyone around you to know it. And they, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary is a guy. Um, I, I'm using this example because I knew Bill was going to be here today. And if you saw that map up there, where there in India, where right above India is Nepal, and that's some of you know that region. That's the Himalayan mountains, and that's where you get Mount Everest. Is right there, the the, the storied Mount Everest. It's like, man, if you climb Mount Everest, you are the man or the woman. I mean, you you're I've whew, you have utmost respect um, from humanity. Sir Edmund Hillary was the first man to have been recorded, to actually been, they could actually verify that he made it to the top of Mount Everest. He's a philanthropist, an entrepreneur. I mean, he's just, and he's given so much of his time and energy to the Nepal, to the region there and to the people. And and he was there one time. He's said to be a very humble man. And he was there one time um, with just doing kind of his work with the people. And, and a bunch of people recognize him, the local, uh, and they run to him and say, can we get a picture with you? So he, he gets in the center of the picture and all these people are gathering around him. And finally someone says, well, here, hold this ice pick. You know, the ice picks that you, you stick in the ice to climb. And it's a very common tool that they use to climb there through Mount Everest. So they hand him an ice pick and he's posing with all these people. In the meantime, right off in the distance is a guide who's getting ready to take a group up into the Himalayan mountains for a, for a trek. The guide looks over and sees Sir Edmund Hillary. He doesn't know it's Sir Edmund Hillary. And he comes over to Sir Edmund Hillary and corrects him for holding the ice pick improperly. He turns it and says, here, you hold it like this. Now, Sir Edmund Hillary, 
<laughs> could have looked at him and said, listen, dude, get your little peon self out of here because I've been to the top of that mountain that you're going to walk around in. What's Redmond Hillary say to him? He looks back at him and says, thank you. That's all he said. Thank you. See, that's humility. And when you look at him, that's why people flock around him to get a picture taken because he's a humble man. And we love humble people. So you want people to find you beautiful, attractive, be humble. It's one of the great ways to do it. The final one I'll say, and this one will bring us into kind of a, to land the airplane, inspiring. Humility inspires people. It inspires people. How many of us love, we love the stories of the people rising from the ashes to become someone. Do you know why we love those stories? Do you know why those stories inspire us? Because we look at those stories and we say, I could do that. I could do that. But when a person is proud, what ends up happening is if a person just stands on a stage or, or attains their honor in their area of expertise and is very proud and very arrogant, almost cast a presence of I'm aloof, I'm distant. And we look at people like that and we think, man, we respect them. I say, boy, they've accomplished some really cool things, but I can't be like them. I can't do that. They're just naturally gifted or they just whatever. But the people that we look to that inspire us are people that we say, I could be like that. I remember a football coach I had that inspired me. One of my early football coaches was an arrogant jerk. And all he ever talked about was all the, 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 um, the CFL team he played for and the college team he played for and the scouts that recruited him and the yada, yada. That's all he ever talked about. And he was in practice. He was still young and fit and he'd run around. He was in shape and he was good. And, and I'm like, man, I, I can't be that. But when I had another coach, Jerry McConley, who came up alongside of me, who was just a little guy. I mean, he's just a little short, stout guy, but a fireball of energy. And he came alongside of me and he didn't tell stories of his grandeur. Instead, he walked with me and helped me and served me and put his arm around me. And other times, I had to kick me in the rear end to get me moving and had this tender balance of firm discipline, but a lot of grace and love. And, and as, as time marched on, I found myself saying, I can play. I want to play for this guy because I'm inspired. But it came from a place of humility, not arrogance. Humble leaders always inspire those around them. It's one of the beautiful things. Jesus, Jesus does this. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Isn't that cool? So Jesus wasn't this proud, arrogant person who stood off at a distance and said, hey, live right, guys. Here's the example. I'm going to show you how to do it. He says, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to enter their world. I'm going to walk in their shoes. I am, I am going to be weak as they were weak. I will allow myself to be tempted as they are tempted in every, every way. So you have faced no temptation in your life that Jesus himself has not faced in every way. Yet he was without sin. Let us then, look at the result. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need beautiful passage, but it inspires us because he walked with us and as us. So it works like this. Jesus today, his ministry is in heaven. It says in the Bible, he sat down next to God. So Jesus is there. So if I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm struggling through life. 
I can with confidence pray and say, God, I need help. And Jesus hears that message. Jesus speaks to God and says, God, you know what? See Adam down there struggling. I've been there. I've done that. I've walked that road. I've been tempted as he's tempted. And I did it without sinning. And I know how hard it is. So God, would you give him mercy and would you help him? Because I'm pleading for him right now. I'm pleading his case. We've exchanged lives, God. And he, he, he's a Christian. He relies on me, have grace. And it inspires us to live. So we wrap it. I just want to close in prayer. And again, I hope I've done at some level, challenge you to consider humility. To see, you know what? Life's not about me. I'm going to live with purpose. I'm going to live for others. And I'm going to do it without anything to prove. What a cool way to live. And it perpetuates life in a brilliant, beautiful way, which most of us in this room want. We want to live. We want life. As you think about this, some will say to me, well, Adam, how do you really, how do you really, how do you, how do you start? As I close in prayer, here's how you start. You start by saying, you know what? Life's not about me. I can't do this on my own. I need help. Acknowledging my need for someone outside of myself to step in and help me. Bring me to peace to God. Begin to give me life in ways that I so much crave and yearn for. And it comes through Jesus. He came, he lived on this earth, and he said, hey, I've got it down. I've lived perfect, and I'm really to exchange that perfection with your imperfection. That's where it starts. And then we just walk from there. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Because we've been in this series uh, just kicking pride and selfishness around and understanding how ugly and gruesome it is and how most of us do struggle at some level with it. God, but boy, my own journey, it's been one that has wrecked havoc in my life. God, my heart as a pastor right now is I just cry out to you for myself that I continue to remain, continue to fight, and continue to work really hard at staying humble. God, I pray for every person in this room that we leave here today saying, man, am I really humble? And we continue to walk out of here saying, I want to be humble because that's a beautiful way to live. And God, I I know people here want to live and they want to live well. And God, the thing I've learned about people as I interact with, many that come here week in and week out, they want to make a difference in life and they want to inspire people and they want to see change happen. And they're living on with purpose. So could you help us to just continue to be humble and expose areas in our lives where we may not be humble? God, I pray for the person here right now who's walked in here maybe this morning is, who's very honest about their relationship with you and says, I don't have one. Maybe some people here this morning don't even care to have one. So God, I pray that you'd speak to them and help them to see just maybe something resonated with them today that they can see, you know what? This guy, Adam, he kind of talked about the Bible of how life works and I resonate that does make life better. And may they begin to probe into that and dig a little deeper and begin to realize, you know what? God's truth has merit. God is true, and I need help with this life. And God, maybe that person for the very first time would just say, I need help. And they begin a journey with you, just acknowledging Jesus for the very first time, understanding they're sinners and they can't do it all. And God, for those that are here that are walking with you, God, I pray that you would give us courage and strength. 
May we be humble people so that we can be bold people. May we be humble people so that we can be beautiful and inspiring people. May we be humble people so that we continue to grow and get better at doing church and doing life and doing business. And God, may we be humble people, truly dependent on you. And God, as I close, just help us to avoid that whole thing, cosmic plagiarism, where we go to bed at night taking credit for our days, taking credit for our hard work, taking credit for what you have done. But may we go to bed at night just giving the credit and glory back to you, acknowledging I'm in a place of a servant, a receiver, not the giver of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.